Well, good morning, ARC. Uh, my name is Stephen Harris. Um, it is uh, my joy and honor to share with you, uh, share in the word with you uh, this morning. Uh, you just, again, as my bride said, met um, half my family with Sonny and Jude and, um, uh, and Luke, as she stated, was not in the video, but he was, you know, upstairs sleeping and, and shaving and whatever else he was doing. Um, but so delighted that we get the chance as a family to uh, share in the Lord's Day celebration with you, uh, virtually that is. Um, it is again my pleasure to, um, to think together with you uh, as we continue on in our study of Mark's Gospel, uh, which has been a, a unique journey uh, as we uh, think about what it means to follow Jesus, think about the kind of narrative that Mark has crafted for us and the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit would have us to know. Uh, about the Son of God, about ourselves, and about just what it is that God was doing, is doing in Christ through the Holy Spirit toward us, for us who, who believe. Uh, we're going to be picking up today in the eighth chapter of Mark's Gospel, uh, beginning at the first verse, uh, and I'm going to be sharing with us today, considering verses 1 to verse 26, um, it's kind of our next section, and I'll talk a little bit about the significance of what this section means, but I want you all to be turning there as we continue to think together about following Jesus, and in this particular instance, I want to tag this text with this title, Unbelievable Compassion. So I want us to think together for a few minutes under the title, Unbelievable Compassion. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 26, and I want to read it for our hearing, or for your hearing, for our hearing, um, and then we'll dive in. But Mark chapter 8, beginning at the first verse, and the word of the Lord says this, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few, a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, he said that these also should be set before them. They ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Such is the reading of the word of God. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for uh, this opportunity to uh, share in your word. And, and Father, our prayer right now is that you meet us uh, here by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would illuminate, bring clarity, uh, bring vision, uh, that we might understand. And by your grace, we might apply what we have understood. So Father, this is our prayer. Um, to all who are listening, um, meet us in your word, we pray. Amen. So my son Jude, who um, you had the privilege of meeting a few minutes ago, uh, virtually, uh, just turned six in October. And um, we saw him there reading. We're really proud of him. You know, yay Jude. Uh, but there was a, a moment a couple weeks ago when Jude was sitting down doing his homework. So he's at school virtually like most people are, doing his homework from his laptop or doing his classes from his laptop. And he was sitting down, I think he was doing maybe reading or science, and I was walking in the kitchen, and Jude looked up, and he said, um, Daddy, I have a question. Okay, Jude, I'm thinking that he just doesn't want to be in his class, he doesn't want to do his homework, so here he comes with this random question. And it was random, because Jude said, Did God create the virus? And I was like, okay, um, okay, um, great question. And so Jude and I talked for a few minutes um, about God's sovereignty, about suffering, about providence, and all of these kind of heavy theological concepts. Because Jude is at that age now where he is considering for himself uh, the constructs and the frameworks that we've been trying to commend to him. And he's developing his own kind of worldview. And so that, the way that reveals itself is it comes out in these random questions, right? You recognize that he can't go to the park, he can't see his friends, he's doing school online, people are dying, have died, people are very sick. Uh, and that, all of that kind of formulated itself into a question in his mind as he's thinking about that reality and about God. He says, hey, did, did God create this thing? Did, did this thing come from him? And in that moment, I was reminded of the fact that we all are trying to grapple with very tough realities. Um, 2020 has been hard for most of us, dare I say all of us, uh, the Harris family um, included. And I know that many people 
communities are confronting far graver conditions than, than we have perhaps personally had to encounter ourselves. But nonetheless, 2020 has been a difficult year uh, as we think about the realities of loss and of pain and of sickness and of suffering um, and of doubt and of worry and fear. And so I don't approach a text like this lightly as we think about Jesus himself declaring himself to be the compassionate one. Let me go ahead and say off top, I don't think he's lying. I do think our Lord is compassionate, as we'll see in this text. Uh, compassionate to a degree that we don't even fully comprehend, even those of us who believe, um, as we yet still see through a glass dimly, to use Pauline language. But I, I don't take the task lightly for us to think together about what it means to consider divine compassion and divine concern in the kind of season that we find ourselves in. Nevertheless, in God's providence, we are at this particular passage at this particular time, and I believe that it's because God wants us to understand something about not only him, but about our about ourselves. Yeah, I just hit that back, back wall and tried to act like I did. But what I want us to think about as we consider this portion of Mark is I want to share with us a little bit about where we are in the story. Now, we've been on this journey for several weeks now, thinking about this Markan testimony, this first of the four uh, in chronology, if you think about the time period at which we consider Mark to have been written. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. And in this particular passage that we're going to talk through today, and we're going to share some observations from, uh, we are approaching what many scholars consider to be the kind of turning point in Mark's gospel, which will be picked up in the next section. But Jesus is in conversation with his disciples, going to bring this section of Mark's testimony to a particular stopping point, or turning point, rather, and is going to pick up and introduce some, some, some different themes that build upon where we have been in Mark's gospel. So this is an important section because in many ways, it's tying together some of the loose ends of what has come before us in preparation to what comes next. And what I want us, want us to consider for the next few minutes is what I call narrative observations. There's a couple of ways that you can approach a, a narrative passage like the gospel narratives. We can look at it in a particular kind of standard way when I kind of pull out three kind of Baptist points, right? Uh, which I could certainly do here, but I want us to kind of feel the weight of this passage just by thinking about some observations together, some things that I think are, are, are divinely put in a particular kind of way uh, from Mark's pen to us who are receiving it as readers. So as we, again, turn our attention to Mark chapter 8, looking at the first verse, I want us to think together particularly about how the passage starts. Mark is intentionally telling us that he is about to continue on the narrative that picks up where we just left off. And picks up in a particular kind of way that it's, it's at the same kind of place and time as the particular story that just came before us. Recall, Jesus healed a deaf man. He's in Gentile territory. Mark wants you to understand that he's still in that region. That he's still in territory that's not largely Jewish territory. So he says, in those days, indicating that we are still in the same place, in the same period, He's still interacting with the same kind of individuals. This is important because we see him setting the stage for what will be the distinction 
between this miraculous feeding, feeding of the 4,000, and the feeding of the 5,000 that happened in chapter 6. Now, scholars have uh, taken pains uh, to discuss uh, what those distinctions are and whether or not this particular miraculous feeding that is only found in Mark and in Matthew, whether or not this miraculous feeding is the same feeding as the feeding in chapter 6, just retold, or whether or not this is a different miracle, miracle altogether. My contention is that it is a distinct miraculous feeding separate from what occurred in chapter 6, and we're going to walk through and see the evidences of why that is so. But Mark wants you to understand that we are in Gentile territory, and this miraculous feeding is about to take place in such territory, which already lets us know that it's distinct from the miraculous feeding that occurred in chapter 6. Why? Because that miraculous feeding occurred in Jewish territory. And if you think about the narrative that Mark has crafted for us and the realities of, of Jesus' life and ministry that he has chronicled, we've already had this ongoing conversation about who's in and who's out, right? Jesus has already conversed with uh, the woman uh, a couple of verses prior who herself, in response to Jesus' claim that the people of Israel are the priority and she herself not being one of them is kind of secondary in a kind of sense. We see, we saw that dialogue take place and kind of worked our way and wrestled through. Well, Jesus has called her a dog and she's like, okay, I may be a dog, but I should get crumbs. That dialogue is already fresh in our mind. And Mark has already now let us know that that is a particular tension in this text as we think about not only who Jesus is and what he's came to do, but for who did Jesus come to do it? And so again, it's intentional that Mark lets us know that we're still in Gentile territory, that this miracle that he's about to tell us about occurs in Gentile territory. It rehearses for us this truth that Jesus is for everybody. That this ministry this salvation, this redemption is for everybody. That's good news in a particular time and place then where that tension exists in it and is being kind of lived out. But that's good news for us in our time and place now where conversations are still prevalent about who constitutes the people of God. Who's legitimate in and of themselves for salvation and redemption? Is there a special people of God? And if so, is that tethered to a particular race, ethnicity, or class? Jesus is, is constantly throughout the Gospels blowing that up for us and rehearsing before us the reality, the fact that he has not only come for an exclusive particular people, ethno-religious uh, uh, group of people, he's come for everybody. And Mark is, is, is rehearsing for us this through the narrative that he has crafted under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell us Jesus is performing miracles for Jews and Jesus is performing miracles for Gentiles. Not only that do we see that this in Gentile territory, but, but we see here a particular uh, reflection of Jesus' own, what I call, interiority. We see here a kind of comprehensive compassion at work with Jesus. Look at what the text says, that he's 
looking at a crowd that had been gathered. They had nothing to eat, so he calls his disciples to him. And Jesus says, I have compassion. Those words only come out of Jesus' mouth here and in Matthew's account of this miracle. Jesus says, I have compassion. Now in chapter 6, where we see the feeding of the 5,000, the narrator, who is Mark himself, lets us know that it was there too that Jesus moved with compassion. But here, Jesus explicitly says, I have compassion. I have a deep love and a care and concern for these people who have been with me for a few days now. And notice what he says about his compassion. Notice what he says are the grounds for his compassion. He says, I have compassion because, there in verse 2, they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. We get a, a kind of sense of a kind of rounding out of uh, the, the capaciousness or the capacity of Jesus' compassion. Because in chapter 6, we're told that Jesus' compassion is because when he looked upon the people, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They didn't have anyone to teach them. And that moved Jesus to teach them truths about the kingdom and about salvation. And while that is consistently true, Mark lets us know here that in this particular instance, Jesus says, I have compassion. But this compassion is not only for their spiritual realities, but this compassion is because of the fact that, look, they've been with me three days and they they hungry. As a matter of fact, you get the sense that Jesus is like, they, they are hangry. They're not just hungry. They, they are probably starving. They have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. This lets us know that as it relates to the ministry of Jesus, the comprehensive understanding of that ministry, Jesus cares not only for our spiritual health, before our physical and material conditions as well. It's, it, 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 it's clear in the text that, that, that Jesus' own compassion, his own sense of felt, uh, his own sense of felt love and, and his own sense of tethering himself to the people who are following him, that is tied to not just spiritual realities, but physical realities as well. As a matter of fact, Jesus is, in one sense, trying to let us know, as we hear in the writer of Hebrews, his words, that we, can, we do not have a high priest that cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. That's King James language. Or as 1 Peter 5 lets us know, that we can cast our cares on Jesus, because what? Because he cares for us. And that care is not just a care for the state of our souls. It's not just a care for our salvation, though, yes, that is our primary uh, concern and ought be our primary heart's concern. But that care extends even to the base and even to the material. This reality for us that Jesus is both concerned with our spiritual conditions and our material conditions is good news for us today, or at least it ought to be. I think oftentimes particularly those of us who are believers and who got a little bit of theology with us and we, 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 we've come to understand some things, I think sometimes we feel a little embarrassed or a little ashamed when our material conditions move us to concern or perhaps we're on the precipice of anxiety and doubt and worry. 
But I think it's these kinds of passages that reassure us that those kinds of cares, Jesus cares about too. And he cares about it because he knows that it affects us. And so, yes, certainly Jesus wants us to, in the fullest sense, understand that our soul's condition and salvation is of utmost concern, not just our temporal realities, because we're all built for eternity. That we're all meant to live somewhere in some eternity. But he also wants us to know that in the here and now, he knows that we are going to be moved and affected by the realities and the material conditions that affect our lives. And so he cares about the fact that you may have lost your job. He cares about the fact that a loved one is sick. He cares about the fact that you maybe have particular concerns about our current health crisis. He cares about that. And those kinds of heart concerns move him with compassion for us. So Jesus says, look, I can't send them away. They're so hungry that, that if I sent them away without eating for several days, many of them will faint on the way. And so his disciples, thinking now about the perhaps feeding of the 5,000, thinking about where they are, his disciples, interestingly enough, still have a, a similar kind of question that they had in the previous feeding. But at this point, I think they get the sense that something is about to be done about it. I think they know it's just not going to be them. Because the disciples saying, well, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Look, they already know it's going to be bread involved. You're about to do something. What you want to do, Jesus? How you want to do it? And so similarly now, we see the, the evidences of the distinction between this account and the previous account kind of take shape. Because look at here what, how, how the narrative goes down. Jesus asks them, how many loaves do you have? And they say, seven. He directs the crowd to sit down on the ground and he takes the seven loaves. He blesses them and they give him a few uh, small pieces of fish. The number is not uh, notated here as it was in the previous account. And he blesses the fish and he sets them down and places the fish before him. But I want you to, 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 to think again about what's happening here. I know we've considered this in chapter six, but I want you to think again about just the reality of what's taking place. His disciples have seven loaves of bread, a few fish, and we'll learn in a few verses that there are 4,000 people here. Of course, we know that ain't enough to feed 4,000 people. But I think we, when we come across this passage, because of, because of its familiarity, I don't think we, we stop to consider what it actually probably looks like with regard to how this miracle takes place. There's just bread being created out of nothing. That Jesus is taking seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. He's got thousands of people, probably just 4,000 of them being men, not counting women and children. He's probably got somewhere between 10 and 15 plus thousand people. He's got a few small loaves of bread, a few small fish. And Jesus is literally creating food before them. Imagine the astonishment as even the people are eating, right? They, they, they enjoying some bread and some fish, and they're like, man, he just got fish coming out of nowhere. He just, look, look at that, look at that. 
Did I just create fish? And they, they just eating and, and seeing fish coming out of nowhere. This is literally a miracle before their eyes. And for the disciples, it's a miracle before their eyes a second time. That he is literally multiplying food that previously does not exist. He is creating bread. He is creating fish right before their eyes. And look at what the text says. He doesn't just make a, a small enough amount for them to at least have the appetites whetted. It says, as it said in chapter 6, that verse 8, they ate and were satisfied. Not only that, they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And an interesting uh, fact here, in the previous account, we're told that there were 12 baskets left over. Here, we're told that there were seven baskets left over. But not only that distinction, there's two different Greek words here that are used for basket. In the previous account, the word that, that was used for basket is literally a kind of small basket. A kind of, if you think of a kind of the current size of a lunchbox today, that's the word basket that is used in chapter 6. Here... The word for basket is a different Greek word that means literally a large basket. The same word that's used in Acts chapter 9, where the apostle Paul is in Damascus, and he's been converted, and they have to let him down out of the window, out of the back of the building, down in a basket. The word that's used here in Mark chapter 8 is that same kind of word, that same size basket. So they have seven very large baskets full of food. And after they've eaten and they've had their fill, he sends them away. And Jesus and his disciples get into a boat and they go to a nearby district. Interestingly enough, he is confronted by the Pharisees again. Now, we've encountered Pharisees multiple times up to this point. We know that the Pharisees have proven themselves to be those who not only do not have ears to hear, they don't have eyes to see, they are obstinate. They, they don't believe in anything Jesus is saying. And probably what is frustrating them the most is that they see the things that he's doing, and so they can't fully discredit that. So we know from the earlier uh, portion of this account that because they can't fully discredit the things that they see with their eyes in terms of the miracles that he's blatantly doing, they attribute the miracles to Satan. Literally blaspheming to the utmost degree. They've been rejecting him the entire way. They are not open to the truth, but they have hardened their hearts. Look at, look at what it says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Ain't that something? Jesus performs this miracle for the second time. He feeds several thousand people. Gets in a boat. People are probably astonished and they're full. Disciples like, yep, that's my dog. Go to the other side of the river. Here come the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, of all things they can come up with, they're like, okay, that was cool over there. We saw that. But show us a sign. And Jesus is, look at what the text says. Again, here's this interiority that Mark is showing us, not just what Jesus is doing, but Mark shows us how Jesus is feeling. And Jesus is sighing deeply. It says he sighed deeply in his spirit. That's a sign. You ever been just exasperated with somebody? Just, I gotta tell you, this is Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to feel like that, right? 
Jesus sighs deeply in his spirit. It's like, I just performed this miracle. I come here, you are talking about show me a sign. It's like, and Jesus says, why does this generation seek a sign? Interesting construction he uses there because this, this mentioning of this generation for uh, the Hebrew listener uh, uh, conjure up memory about the ways in which that construct was previously used in the Hebrew scriptures. This evil generation. This generation referring to the people who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because of their disbelief. That kind of generation. Jesus is again attributing that kind of obstinance and disbelief and hard-heartedness. He's attributing it now to the generation of the Pharisees. Included in that would be the Sadducees and the scribes. We've seen all of them in this gospel. He says, truly I say to you, no sign will be given to you. No sign will be given to this generation. Here you see the the dead end of disbelief. It's a dead end. Jesus had before this point told us a little bit about how he interacts with people who are open and believing versus how he interacts with people whose hearts are closed to the truth. And he's told them at an earlier point in this gospel that the means that he takes and the measures that he takes with these different types of people are revealed in his employing of parables. And he tells the disciples that, look, I'm speaking in parables because for some people it's been given to them to, to literally be drawn in to the truth. It's been given to them to have their ears and eyes open. For other people, they're going to be closed off to the truth. So one of the crazy things about parables is that at the same time, with the same parable, Jesus is keeping some people at bay while he's calling other people closer, depending on the condition of their hearts when they are confronted with blatant, obvious truths about who Jesus is. And Jesus is, 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 is telling us here that that continual disbelief and obstinateness, obstinance and hard-heartedness in the faith, face of the truth of who he is, that's a dead end. That, 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 that disbelief isn't simply a neutral kind of condition and status that you can sit in. It, 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 would, be, it would be like believing that a, a, a boat without an anchor can stay in one place. No, no, no. You are either drifting away from something or you are drifting closer to something. And what Jesus is revealing here is for the Pharisees and those who are like them, this belief leads to a dead end. There's not going to be any, any, any signs. Matter of fact, in Matthew's version of this same miracle and account, Jesus adds that the only sign that's going to be given is the sign of Jonah. Giving a hint of a reference to his death, burial, and resurrection as we get illustrated in the life and ministry of Jonah himself. But Jesus says, no, no, there's no more for individuals who are continually closing themselves off to the truth. And this is the irony of it, right? Because you would think that those who are asking for one more sign, that if they are shown that one more sign, that that might tip them over into belief. No, 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 it's actually working the, the opposite way. 
that the more and more signs that are shown to people who are unbelieving, it will only harden them further. Isn't that something? That the Pharisees are in such a condition that that, that, that for Jesus to show them something else wouldn't open them up. It would just close them down further. Why? Because they don't want to believe. They don't want to accept the fact that, that they too are in desperate need of a Savior. They don't want to accept the fact that the Son of God has, has revealed himself before us, that this, this is the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. They don't want to be open to that, to even consider that truth. And so it is, I would say, to individuals today who are listening, who perhaps feel themselves even perhaps becoming open to who this Jesus is and what he's all about. If you're not a believer and you're watching this video and you're thinking about these things and you're hearing about Jesus and you're hearing about his life, look, don't think that you can kind of put this off to, you know, 2021. You know, let's see how the rest of 2020 ends up. You know, we got maybe got some bright days ahead of us for the next. No, 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 no. Don't think that you can put this off. That if today you feel and sense that you are hearing his voice calling and beckoning you to come to him and believe, don't allow your heart to be hardened. That today could be the day that you receive salvation if you would but repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to more of that. But I want you to see here this particular passage that Jesus is literally shutting down his attention on the Pharisees. The door is now officially closed. No sign will be given. I'm done. Jesus literally gets back in the boat and goes back to the other side. Isn't that something? He performs a miracle, gets in the boat, goes to the other side. Pharisees standing there waiting on him. He interacts with Pharisees, gets back in the boat, goes back to the other side. And now a conversation ensues with between Jesus and his his own disciples. He wants to further un unpack and explore with them this what I'm calling this dead end of disbelief. He's concerned that the, the obstinance of the Pharisees will become the status of the disciples who themselves are just evidencing their own obtuseness, right? So the, the disciples up to this point you see them kind of seeing miracles and they're interacting with Jesus and disciples just don't get it. They're just really thick. They're dull. They're not, the light isn't turning on. They're not yet in the condition that the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are like, we don't like Jesus. And we just, any opportunity we, we got to test him, to doubt him, we gonna show up. We are the true definition of a hater. Disciples aren't there yet, obviously, but the disciples are struggling still to truly understand what's going on in front of them. And Jesus is concerned that their obtuseness might turn into obstinance. He wants them to be on guard, to be, to be, to be wary, to watch out. Literally is the word that he says there in verse 15. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, Mark lets us know right before that verse that the disciples, having gotten in the boat with Jesus again, they're thinking about the fact that they left all that bread and all that fish over there. They're like, you know, we, we left those fish sandwiches. That was a lot of fish sandwiches and we left them. This is where they are. That's their concern. They're like, look, it was seven large baskets full of fish sandwiches. We, we, we left most of that there. 
And so when Jesus comes to them and he's like, yo, watch out, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, look at, look at what the disciples do in verse 16. They begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. This just shows you just again how just the disciples, I'm telling you, we're going to talk about them and us in a second, but, but this just shows you where they are. Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees, shuts them down, done with the Pharisees, not showing you a sign. And Jesus says, you know what? Beware the leaven. Literally, the, 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 the ingredient that diffuses itself, that spreads itself in bread, that, that only a small amount is necessary. Beware of that kind of effect that, that the thinking and the disposition of the Pharisees and those like them, beware of the influence that that can have on your own heart. It's like leaven. Beware of that. And the disciples are like, they're like, can you, you ever been with somebody who's trying to pay attention to you, but they really don't get it? But the disciples are like, probably like, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. For one second, Jesus, I told you we should have got fish sandwiches. I told you we should have brought them. Because clearly that's what he's talking about. This is where the disciples are. Jesus is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? They interpret his warning to be about the fact that they forgot them joints in the, in the baskets. And Jesus is like, why, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? And he just shoots off a series of questions. Now, G Jesus got questions. He's got questions. Why are you talking about you don't have bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Like, he's just boom, boom, boom. The disciples are probably like, I, I, I did. we was going to get the bread. Why are you discussing bread? Because here's what Jesus wants them to see. Look at the kind of questions that are going to roll from this point. Having eyes do you not see. Having ears do you not hear. Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets were taken up? Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets were taken up? Seven. Jesus is saying, look, I've already showed you that bread is no problem for your boy. Why are you talking about bread? Do you think that what I'm talking to you about right now or trying to talk to you about right now is bread? I just showed you that I can just make some on spot. And what Jesus is revealing for us in this moment is that the disciples, and by extension us, we often don't fully realize the spiritual realities that sit beneath the surface of the material conditions and realities that we are confronting. This entire time, all throughout this gospel, from first chapter onward, Jesus has been showing up on the spot immediately, quickly, healing people, providing for people, performing all kinds of miracles. And there in chapter two, I believe it was, he encounters a paralytic man. And Jesus engages in this interesting conversation about what is easier to say? You remember that? And I think in that instance, a reality that I think ought to stay with the disciples or ought to stay with the hearers and ought to stay with us to this point now in Encountering Chapter 8 is that all of these kinds of material realities that Jesus is de de demonstrating that he clearly has authority over is all for the purpose of showing us, like he did in Chapter 2, that he is the son of God who also has authority to forgive us of our sins. That that, that that also is his deeper, greater ministry. And so when Jesus is confronting 
the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod and warning them against that pride and arrogance and disbelief and obstinance. For them to turn again immediately back to the material is for Jesus a, a, a sight or a source of, of, of concern and frustration. Because they have been walking with Jesus, they have been watching Jesus and they should have realized that the things that he has done and the things that he has taught up to this point are speaking to something of a greater reality and significance. So here, I don't think it's by happenstance that Mark constructs this portion of the narrative the way that he does. You see this all throughout Mark. Mark uses this literary technique called sandwiching or, 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 or putting particular things in the middle of something forcing you to consider these two realities together. So think with me back at the end of chapter 7. Jesus healed a deaf man right before we encountered on our journey through chapter 8. Show up chapter 8, Jesus feeds 4,000. Then that is broken up by this encounter with the Pharisees and this discourse with the disciples about disbelief, dead end of disbelief is what I'm calling it, about that kind of dullness to the spiritual realities that Jesus is trying to push them and us to consider. And then we go back to another miracle as we end our time. Jesus and a blind man at Bethsaida. Look at what the text says. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, commentators have been making much about the spit for years. And, and, and while that is certainly striking, because that's, our mind immediately goes to, wait, wait a minute, he spit? You didn't have to spit, Jesus. We don't like spit. This man is blind. And individuals are bringing to him, uh, individuals have brought him to Jesus because they have heard that Jesus is the one who's been doing things that no one has ever seen before. And I can't see, but you've been putting limbs back together. You've been healing people of leprosy. You've been doing it all. So I'm blind, spit on me. Do whatever you got to do. Say a couple of abracadabras, whatever you got to do to get this done. And so he does it, lays hands on him. Do you see anything? And the blind man or the man who was once blind looks up and says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Isn't that interesting? Nowhere else in neither the synoptics or John's gospel do you see Jesus perform a progressive healing. But the blind man, the man who was once blind, looks up and says, I see people. They're not looking right, though. They look like trees walking. He says, I, I can see something, but it's not quite clear. So Jesus, Jesus laid his hands on him again. He opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Sent him to his home saying, when you go back to the village, just go home and chill. Blind man's sight is restored. Now, 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 now think about how Mark has crafted this. We have last week, deaf man giving his, giving his hearing back. Now we have a miracle of feeding 4,000, 
contentious discussion with the Pharisees and the disciples about understanding what all this means. And then Jesus performs this kind of two-step healing of the man who was previously born blind. I think Mark is intentionally, by placing this tension in between deaf man being given his auditory abilities back, starving people being fed, and blind man being progressively healed, I think Mark wants us to, to consider that Jesus is the one from whom we do not only get our physical abilities, namely hearing. He's not the one through whom which we not only get our physical needs met, going from being malnourished to satisfied. Not only the one through whom we get something as basic as our sight, but with Jesus, we also get our spiritual hearing. We get our spiritual nourishment. We get our spiritual sight. And he's demonstrating here for, through his conversation with disciples and to you and I, that this is a process. And this is why I'm, I'm grateful for this particular placement of this healing, this progressive healing, because we see all throughout this narrative, the disciples failing to understand, getting it, but then not getting it, understanding, but then not fully understanding. And Jesus's tense words with the disciples about how do how is it that you do not still understand and then performing this miracle where he, in steps, progressively restores sight to this blind man. I think if, if the disciples were, were thinking deeply at this point, seeing what has now taken place with this blind man and thinking back through what had taken place before this event, I think the disciples are probably a little encouraged now. Because we just left a hard conversa conversation with Jesus He's like, you still don't understand. And now this healing where he takes a progressive approach to restoring this man's sight. I imagine that the disciples are at that moment refreshed that, okay, thank God Jesus is a man who works for people. Thank God Jesus is a man who, who, who brings people to where they need to be. Because imagine this, man born blind. Jesus performs his miracle. Do you see anything? He has some sight. I see men, but they're walking like trees. Imagine the story ending there. But this is this is not this is not the healing that Jesus brings. Jesus brings full healing, full sight, and he doesn't leave you at a state of already, but kind of not yet, right? That, that, that's, not, that's not the final resting point. Jesus is going to bring this man to full restoration of his sight. But it, it, it takes place through a, proper, through a process. It takes place progressively. And I think for the disciples watching and for you and I seeing this and for thinking about where the disciples have been and how you and I are often too, like the disciples, he takes us along, doesn't he? There have been many points where Jesus has done things in my life. He's showed up. And there have been many points where I failed to truly comprehend and understand what it is that Jesus would have me comprehend and understand. Does Jesus throw me out at that point? Thank God he doesn't. That Jesus is willing to 
labor with me, that Jesus is willing to progressively sanctify me through his word and by means of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is willing to, to put it in Pauline words, bring to completion the work that he begins in me. So as it is with the man physically in his sight, Jesus is not satisfied uh, with the man simply being given back a degree of sight that is not full restoration, but he takes him from blindness to full sight. And kudos to the man for being honest. If you haven't been able to see your whole life and somebody brings you to this miracle worker and Jesus performs this miracle and you can now see a little bit, appreciate you, man. You know, yes, I can see. I, I, before I couldn't see anything. I can see now. It's probably need to go home and wash my face a little bit, but I appreciate you. No, no, no. Man's like, no, I can see, but it's not quite where it needs to be. Why don't we come to Jesus with such honesty about where we are? Jesus, I, I believe, but I need you to help my unbelief. Jesus, I, I, I know that you are who you say that you are, but I, I'm, I'm struggling right here at, at, at this point or in this area. Because here's the truth of the matter. Jesus already knows. And our convincing or being convinced of the fact that Jesus is the kind of savior who doesn't give up on you, but who labors with you, who journeys with you, who brings you to full completion. This is in fact what we know to be true, that he's already justified us. He's gonna ultimately glorify us in Christ. All of that has been, been settled. That this journey of faith that the believer is walking out, it's already been settled and sealed. The down payment has already been made via the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and sanctifying us. This is already a work that has been put in progress with the assurance that is going to be brought to completion. And so Jesus wants his disciples to know at this point, and he wants you and I to know at this point, that all of the things that Jesus has proven that he is capable of doing speaks to the greater reality that he is the one who is capable of saving our very souls. And his work and his ministry is not done yet. This turning point in Mark's gospel is significant here because from this point on, he's turning his attention exclusively to teaching his disciples exactly what it means to be the Messiah. Exactly what it means to be the Savior. It's not only the Messiah who performs miracles, but it's the Savior who also suffers. And so if you're not a Christian listening to this, I want you to consider this reality that this Jesus who we have been talking about all throughout these eight chapters, who is a miracle worker, who has authority, who has power, who in some sense is reflecting his divinity. This Jesus is also the Jesus who goes to the cross and dies. This is the same Jesus who, as the son of God, takes upon himself the sins of his people. And he dies the death that you and I deserve. He dies in our stead. Those of us who would repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in him. This is the ultimate mission and work that Jesus has come to accomplish. And so now it makes sense up to this point. While we've encountered something that commentators might refer to as the Messianic secret, 
that he's been telling people all up to this point after he performs a miracle, don't go tell anybody. Because Jesus knows, and he's going to get his disciples to the point where they will ultimately know that that's not the greatest miracle that he has yet to perform, that the greatest miracle is going to happen on a tree. And when they put me on a tree, and when they crucify me, and when I'm buried and when I'm resurrected, then you go tell everybody. This notion that we started out with, unbelief and compassion, I wanted us to consider these two warring thoughts together as we see them reflected in our text, because in the face of such significant, significant compassion, that is Jesus' own compassion. The believer is yet pressed to challenge him or herself, fighting against our own unbelief in the face of knowing what Jesus has done and who he is, not only in our material realities, but for our spiritual realities. Seeing the disciples here at this point, we might be filled with frustration ourselves as we see Jesus sigh and groan. In this narrative, as we're forced to do in all narratives, we're not anybody but the disciples. We're certainly not Jesus. Hope to God we're not Pharisees. But we're like the disciples. Having been shown over and over again God's goodness, his grace, his mercy. Still wrestling with unbelief and doubt. So as I walked through this text, I was reminding myself as we go through this very odd season that we're in, that the same Jesus who has proven himself over and over and over again, same God, is the God who is with us, walking with us through the conditions that we're confronted today, same God. We often treat God like his track record is poor with us. And God, I would trust you here in 2020, but you know, in 2019, I kind of had to do it myself. You know, that ain't true. And many of us have found ourselves here in December of 2020 having gone through incredible trial, tribulation, loss. But we know that we didn't get to this point by ourselves. We know that it was, it was all God. And so press now to fight against that growing unbelief, that feeling in your stomach that happens when a new situation comes on the scene, forced to be reminded, like Jesus reminded his disciples. Wait a minute, how many, how many loaves? How many fish? How many people? We can all reach back over the memory of our own lives and see God's faithfulness. Let that spur you to greater faithfulness in this moment. And if you're watching this and you don't believe in Jesus, let that spur you to belief. Not just that he can provide physical bread, but that he himself is the bread of life that you need to be reconciled to God the Father. I want, for me and my family, you saw Sonny and Jude reading the, the passage, and the kind of questions that Jude is even asking about the virus and about this year, I want us to be able to say, by God's grace, aiding presence and power of the Holy Spirit, that we walk through this thing with faith. 
that 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 we walk through it as those who knew that we could be assured that what we had entrusted God to take care of, that he was going to take care of it. That's my prayer for you and your family and whoever is watching, that, that you trust God. He is compassionate in ways that we don't fully comprehend. And he is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Um, just time in your word, uh, so much here to, to, to encounter these gospels and to encounter these narratives is to encounter Jesus afresh and to discover by means of the Holy Spirit new things that we had not seen before and to be confronted with questions that we had not considered before, to be confronted with a sense of divine compassion that we had not been awakened to before. Um, Father, we, we thank you for the, the precious opportunity to, to be able to come back again and again um, for more and more of Jesus, um, that we might learn of him, that we might know him, that we might love him, that we might follow him. So Father, that is our prayer. Um, that is our prayer. And we pray that um, you would apply this word to our hearts, Lord, we pray that 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 you would go before us, that you remind us of where we've been, and give us a, a peace in knowing that the things that concern us, that we care about, we can cast them on you because you've already proven yourself able to take care of that which matters most. And so, Father, for that we say thank you. Bless everyone under the sound of my voice, watching virtually. Pray that you would be with them even now. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.